welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. I'm a photographer who has lived most of my life in Austin, and I really love the art community here. When I was trying to figure out what I could do to give back and maybe help that community, I decided to start interviewing the creative people I know and share those conversations in a way that anyone can listen in and hopefully find some value in the lives, careers, and passions of those around them. I'm so grateful to be able to do this, and I'm thankful to everyone who has already been a guest. I'm really looking forward to the coming year and all the people I will meet and interview and get to spend time with. You just might be one of those people. First, I want to apologize for my voice. The Austin allergy and cold season is in full effect, so I do sound a bit stuffed up now and in the interview. And I would like to give thanks to my friend Stan Killian for providing the intro and outro music. The song is Elvin's Sight, and it's from his album, Unified. So I've known Flip Solomon for at least five years, and have photographed a lot of her work, and we have had many in-depth conversations, but what I love about doing an interview is that I am asking a lot of questions I might not normally to really get at the essence of a person and their work in the time frame of an hour. Flip's pen and ink drawings are just beautiful and the story of how she got to where she is, and the source of the subjects, symbols, and themes in her imagery is really interesting. The big takeaway for me is the choice to reframe any problem and see it as a solution or opportunity. If you don't know what narcolepsy is already, you will after listening, and you will have a greater appreciation for how far Flip has come, which makes her success even more inspiring. So here is my conversation with Flip. Hey, Flip. Welcome to my podcast. Hi, Scott. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being here. So I guess one of the first questions I usually ask is if you meet someone for the first time and they ask you about yourself, about what you do, what do you tell them? I describe myself as a pen and ink artist, and I tell people that I do very, very large-scale pen and ink works that take a very long time that are very, very detailed. (laughs) And I tell them that my painter friends have come up to my studio and asked me if I have some sort of mental illness, (laughs) because (laughs) how long are these things taking you? Um, They do take forever. Some of them take anywhere from a month and a half to six or seven months to do one piece. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they take a long time depending on how much fur is in the piece. Oh, okay. And how much line work as opposed to brush work and just kind of how complex the piece is and how challenging it is and how many times I get stumped on how I'm going to accomplish. Yeah. Part of it. So, they take a while. Okay. Yeah. And how did you I guess I'm just I don't think I know much about your origin story. Like how did you get to where you are now as far as being an artist? Like when are Maybe some of your earliest memories of doing art or being inspired by art. Well, when I was young, art was always the thing that I was good at. So I did very well at school. I was um, very good at academics. I was quite studious. Um, I was a math whiz. So I did all the math bees in um, that area of the country. Um, And then I was very good at art from a very early age, And when I say good at art, I just mean that uh, people could recognize what it was from an early age. um, Without classes, you were just kind of, your parents got you some supplies and you just kind of went off? Yeah, I think it was um, a bit of a natural talent. Like some people just come in with a little bit of a natural talent. 
And my mom was an artist. Oh, okay. So my mom was a textile artist and a painter. So she had a very artistic type of personality. And my dad is on the other end of the spectrum. He is um, a computer programmer, but he has a very high appreciation for the arts. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Southern Connecticut, about an hour from Manhattan. Okay. Um, my mom is from England. My dad's from New York. So we were constantly in Manhattan at museums, at galleries. Uh, my mom would scout out the tinier museums, the folk art museums, yeah. the textile museums. They were very into traveling, so I was able to travel all over the country and all over the world at a young age. And whenever we traveled, we were scouting out galleries or um, even textile cooperatives. Yeah. Anywhere where there's creativity and things being made baskets being woven textiles being woven so it was very much a part of my early life and um where i'm from the arts are held in a very high esteem oh. um so my older sister was a dancer she was a ballerina until she sustained two very serious injuries when she was a teenager on point mm -hmm. um so everybody always thought i would become an artist because yeah. that was my thing. Yeah. Um, and was your mom in all these trips looking for her own inspiration, but then also wanting to inspire you? Or you just happened to be there, do you think? I think I just happened to be there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my parents have very dynamic personalities. Um, so they were doing a lot of things because they were interested in them. But they also wanted to expose my sister and I. Yeah to other cultures, other ways of living, anything they could expose us to, yeah, really. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I had a lucky childhood in a lot of ways. Um, and when I was younger, you know, my sister and I would complain about it because we wanted to do fun stuff. We didn't <laughs> want to be in museums all day yeah. long. But we, you know, all that stuff from your childhood, it, it seeps into your subconscious. Mm -hmm. And it's there forever. So even if I didn't really appreciate it at the time, I certainly do now. My mom also had a side business where she repaired oriental carpets. Oh. So everywhere, like in the tri-state area, people would bring, you know, their Persian carpets, their kilims, their mud cloths. So I grew up in a house that was filled with textiles oh. from all over the world. And my parents are very, very civic-minded, I would say. Yeah. So I think they felt it was their responsibility to really expose us to to everything they could and also what can you do for other people yeah so uh, my mom ended up opening a store in downtown milford where i'm from called artifacts and it's kind of like a Ten Thousand villages yeah where she was seeking out fair trade types of situations yeah. and women in other countries where that was their trade and how could she support them and bring those goods from all around the world to the people in the United States. So we were having people come in on the train from Manhattan to go to her shop to yeah. get some culture because she oh, would wow. scout out the most unusual stuff, stuff you don't see every day. And that was her passion. That was part of her traveling was always to find these vendors yeah. that had these unusual things that were working with tribes that are not well known. So a lot of people were coming 
to Milford from Manhattan. Usually it's the other way around. You know, people are traveling (laughs) to Manhattan to get their culture. So it was the other way around and they would spend hours in my mom's shop. And my mom was, um, as I said, a very dynamic personality, very, very evolved type of person. I used to say when people would talk to her for a while and leave her shop energetically, it kind of looked like their head had been opened like a sardine can. Yeah. And they were just thinking. You could tell Mm. like she had introduced some new concept that they'd never thought about before, or they'd seen some talisman in there that they'd really connected with. So she had some magic going on in there. And were you in the shop, like soaking up all this, meeting these people or? I, she opened up the shop after I had left home. Okay. So I usually try to visit my family twice a year and I would spend time in there because I mean, it's stuff that you've never seen before. Yeah. Some of the stuff I have in my house, it's like marionettes with the most tailored clothing on where it's like one ponytail is yarn and the other ponytail is real human hair from this tribe because it believed that it held this power. So she was turned on to a lot of really, really neat stuff. Um, And she was always trying to make it accessible to people. So the prices were really um, affordable. So people would come in and it's like, it didn't matter if you were a poor student or something, you could still find something that you connected to um, and be able to afford it. And that was really important to my mom. Um, Just that people were exposed. Because I think that's so important. You know, some people never leave the area that they're from and they just have no idea what's going on in the rest of the world or about how other people live, really. So she would have little stories about this group of people and what they do there and what their lives look like um, and pictures and stuff. So it was kind of an educational experience all in all. My mom was a real idea person, a real connector, and she had that kind of very rare skill or personality trait where she could meet people where they were at. Hmm. So people were comfortable talking to her and people would go in and talk to her for hours about very unusual things. (laughs) They probably never thought about in their whole lives before that. So this is what you were exposed to throughout your upbringing, throughout your teenage years. And at the same time you're pursuing art in high school or. Um, Well, what happened with me, my timeline's a little bit funny because I did a lot of this stuff early So um, from an early age, you know, I was getting all the class awards for best artist, blah, 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 you know, when you're a little kid. And then um, I test very well. Mm -hmm. So I was a weird little kid. Yeah. So they didn't know what was up with me. They didn't know if I was slow. They didn't know if I was the other way because I wouldn't talk. I was very quiet. Okay. And I didn't really have a lot of interest in talking. I was shy I was very introverted and I wasn't I wasn't very connected and I felt very different and I couldn't really kind of understand why people did the things that they did and I didn't have a lot of passion yeah I think as a young kid I was a weird kid okay definitely like the you know I was a weird kid so anyway all of a sudden I'm a weird kid but I have this kind of unusual talent where you know I'm drawing like somebody would draw many years older than myself So I got noticed young, and then when the testing started, and they start standardized testing, and they start IQ tests and things like that, 
um, because I do so well on tests, all of a sudden I was plucked around fourth grade for that reason. And I was put in, you know, all the gifted programs. And in those programs, if they see a natural talent, they're really going to try to nurture that. And all of a sudden, instead of a busy school day where they're cramming in all of these things, you're in a program where for five hours a day, you can work on this project designing a city. And oh, how, wow. would, how would you design a city? And you can work on it for a few months. So from an early age, I was very nurtured in that way. And my parents, you know, believing that the arts are of such a high importance, they didn't see it as... Um, you know, something extra or something that's not practical, they saw as kind of the most important thing. So, of course, they encouraged that. So I had a lot of encouragement from a a very young age. And because um, my brain looked different to them, when you have that kind of brain, it needs to be stimulated. So it was a lot of... um, like logic problems. We do logic problems for hours on end. Yeah. It was a lot of that sort of things and and really cool, interesting projects and stuff. So I was able to spend a lot of time doing artwork when I was young. And as I said, I was not a very passionate child. Yeah. So what that looks like is a kid that can't really get attached to anything here. And I didn't really like being a kid. I didn't like having rules. I didn't like having parents. I came in and I was kind of like, I already kind of get this. I don't want these stupid rules put upon me. So it kind of felt like I was in a prison all the time. And my parents were very careful with me and my sister. They were a bit overprotective. We were a bit sheltered. So I wasn't super passionate. So it wasn't like my passion was art. It was just what oh. I was good at and what was encouraged. And it was honestly what I would rather be doing rather than being in class. So I just kept doing that and doing that. So finally we get to high school and, you know, I'm taking more art classes. And my mom was one of the co-founders of the Fine Arts Council in my hometown. So she was very connected to all the other towns in Connecticut because it's a small state. So she was able to get me into all the art fairs and all the art contests. And because, you know, I was taking private lessons. And then by the time I was in high school, I was allowed to take college classes on top of that. So I attended Pear College of Art while I was still in high school. Oh, wow. And that school is a really unusual school in that they teach um, classic graphite, which I don't really think most art schools do anymore. So I can only describe it that I was trained in that way. And I think I was young enough to not have resistance to, you know, being told what to do, this very specific uh, way of doing something with these very specific methods. Really, you have to be very patient with graphite. So the way they taught it, you start out with the very hardest pencil. You start out with like the 8H or the 9H and you use a razor And you sharpen it with sandpaper to get a super, super sharp point. And then you start your cross hatching. And then you move to the 7H and you make a really sharp point. And you're layering graphite. Uh So you're going through about a range of 20 different pencils. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're not skipping any. You're not moving the graphite around in any way. You're just layering and layering. 
and it creates this very 3D effect. That's the only way I know to really get that effect is to layer it in that way with these very, very thin lines. But a five by seven portrait could take 40 hours. Yeah. So they take a very long time. Most kids my age, they don't, you know, they're doing art in school. Maybe they're entering like a five hour painting in, you know. And you had the patience for this too. Or was it just painful? (laughs) No, I'm one of the most patient people I've ever met for a lot of different things. So I had the patience for it. Yeah. So that's the way I learned. So I was entering things into these art contests that um, looked well beyond what I should be able to do at that age. And it was just because I, I kind of had an edge with the training that I got. Yeah. Um, so I was always, you know, winning for a second, third place. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like a little bit of an unfair advantage. Well, probably. you practiced a lot. <laughs> I practiced a I mean, lot. I spent a lot of time at Pear College of Art doing that. So, yes, I was very patient with it, and it is such a cool effect. The product is really, it looks really nice. But it really helped me because from an early age, I was able to make a lot of money off of my art very quickly. So I've never had that imprint of, like, starving artists, or I can't make it with my art. So that's another way I was kind of lucky from an early age. But what happened was I kind of burnt out young. So... By the time I got into high school, most of my friends are artists and musicians. And a lot of my artist friends are really good and they're really passionate. And when you have passion for something, the work that comes out of that is is new and exciting and it's got all this emotion behind it. And I I just didn't have that passion. So I had the the technical aspect down. Yeah. Not really the inspiration, not really the passion. Or the creativity? Um, yeah, I guess they go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've always been pretty creative, I think. Um, anything working with my hands, I prefer. But yeah, you don't have that, that kind of magic behind it. Yeah. You know? The flow. Did you ever get any flow states? Like, Not really. <laughs> so, I, you know, my, my friends and all the people I hung out with in high school, I was like, I'm... I'm not really an artist. Like they're they're the artists. They're the ones that can really change people. They're the ones that are passionate, that love mm. this. They die if they're not going to do it. You just you know? felt like a technician, or yeah, I felt like I, it. Just felt like something that I was good at that I'd been kind of pushed into that I didn't necessarily care about that much. Yeah, it, it was better than other things. <laughs> yeah, I guess well, could have been worse. Yeah, yeah, it could have been worse. Better than algebra, probably. Well, the funny thing is, is that I was a math whiz. Oh, uh, right. So I loved algebra. Yeah, and I was like very, very advanced okay. with math. And, yeah, uh, funny gotcha. you should bring that up. Everything else, not so much, you know. Uh, the other subjects, not so yeah, much. Okay. But I loved, um, I've always loved math, and I was very good at math. And it calmed me down Ooh. because you always get one answer and then you can check it a different way. And if you come up with the same answer, you know, it's right. And in a world where there's infinite answers and solutions and possibilities, it kind of soothed my brain in a way that I did bookkeeping for years. I loved accounting. So by the time I graduated from high school, it was honestly art school 
or like going into accounting because it made me feel so good and so calm. And sometimes with people like me, you get that kind of sensory overload. Yeah. So repetition feels good. And well, it seems like almost like a blank canvas could be total chaos. Yeah. Could be like a, <laughs> you're talking about like so many possibilities, potential, like there's no right answer on a canvas or a piece of paper. So yes. And if you're in a state of mind where you don't have a lot of passion, because I mean, I was bored stiff as a kid. I did not, I didn't like being a kid. I didn't like yeah. not having power. I didn't like having rules basically is what it boiled down to. So but yeah, you finally got out of the house. It's, it's yeah, I finally got out of the house and you know, I did go to art school on full scholarships. Um, so it was kind of an easy, easy transition. My parents were like, please go into art. Like you have this talent you know, like you can have an exciting life. It's something that will stimulate you. And, and you're kind of like shrugging your shoulders like, oh, I guess. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Isn't that crazy? Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So finally, um, I left the house and all of a sudden it's like the whole world opens up to you. Hmm. And, you know, I had graduated early, so I was young going to college. But once I got there, I loved the other students and I love that feeling of creativity. But then after all that intense training that I'd had years before, I didn't feel like I was learning anything. Oh. So my whole first year of college, I was like, this is a waste of time. Yeah. I'm not, I, I didn't feel like I was getting a lot out of it. You were, yeah, you were too advanced. Sort of. And I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't want more rules. Yeah. And kind of what I had realized as soon as I was on my own, because I have a real vibration of freedom. Yeah. I like freedom. I don't like feeling constrained at all. Um, so once I got out on my own, I realized, holy cow, like this whole time I felt like I've been in prison yeah. going through the school system, having parents that were a little bit strict. Yeah. And I was like, I put myself in that prison. Like, I have free will. I can do whatever I want to. Like, I could have cut school every day if I wanted to and gone into Manhattan. You know, and I realized that I had kind of had this self-imposed prison. Yeah. So then all of a sudden, the world kind of opens up to you when you have that freedom. You're like, I don't even need to be in college. Why? Or That's what it felt like. So all of a sudden, I'm like, I don't really think I need to be doing this. Um, I, I wasn't getting a lot out of it. So then a lot of my friends had gone to mass art in Boston. I thought, well, I'll transfer there and at least I'll be in a big city and I can kind of experience more of life. Cause I was like a real life junkie. Yeah. And, um, so I moved to Boston and then I didn't like being in school there either. I went to mass <laughs> art. It's a great school. Both schools I went to are great. I didn't like that school either. And the teacher I had was my teacher for three different classes and I get along with almost everybody. And she and I really didn't get along very well. Yeah. She was obsessed with Edward Hopper. Yeah. Who is an American artist who does a lot of the street scenes. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> yeah, I always liked him too. I never had a problem with him. But after spending hours a day with somebody who wants all of your artwork to look like oh, that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. And like I, I was like, I can't do this. So... um so I dropped out. I'm an art school dropout. <laughs> I dropped out of there and I stayed in Boston for a little bit longer. And then my life kind of took another turn because um, I had always kind of been a wallflower. Uh -huh. I was a weird, first of all, I was a weird little kid. Yeah. Shy, didn't talk. Shy, weird, seeing stuff that other people didn't see. 
kind of creepy, weird kid. Uh Um, And then I was kind of very awkward looking. And I had realized early on that that was going to be my life. Like, I was never going to be pretty. I was never going to be glamorous. That world didn't feel available to me. So I thought, okay, well, um, I'll just become really smart. I'll focus on my studies. Yeah. And I'll focus on my art and I'll do this and that. And I thought that my life was going to be like that forever. And that was fine. And then I guess I was around 18 or 19 and I dropped out of mass art. I decided, you know, I hate all this pressure put on women to be pretty. I don't feel pretty. You know, that world doesn't feel available to me. So I shaved my head. It's like, I'll go in the other direction. So I just will stop thinking about it. I won't care. And as soon as I shaved my head... All of a sudden, all these people were coming up to me. You are so beautiful. You're so brave. You, you know, you look like a warrior. Da da da. I got a modeling contract off the street. Oh wow! So all of a sudden, everything flip flopped in that arena very quickly. And it sounds a little bit silly, but it's almost like you are inducted into a whole different world oh. where people look at you differently and they treat you differently. And when that happens, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I get to do whatever I want now. And I get to date and I get to have fun. And it was like, like a parties. newfound power. Yeah. Because image and beauty are so important to people. It's so important to people. And people are very visual and they make judgment calls based on how you look and things like that. So for the next 15 or 20 years, I didn't do my artwork. Oh. Which okay. is very unusual for an artist to be able to kind of stay away. Yeah. I didn't realize that. you had a big break like that. Yeah, I had a really big break. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and I've always been creative and artistic. And, you know, I wanted to experience everything that life had to offer. Yeah. Because all of a sudden I felt like it was a valid thing for me to shoot for. Yeah. So I had a million different jobs. A million different relationships. I traveled a ton. Traveling is like my number one passion in life. Um, So I just lived a really full life for about, gosh, I guess for a good, you know, 10 years or so. Yeah. And I had a ton of fun and I partied and I did all the things. In Boston or where? Um, let's see, I was in Boston for a while and then I moved from Boston to Austin and I fell in love with the people here, how genuine they were and authentic and heart centered up North. There's a little bit of a feeling of like a, um, like a closed in nature. People kind of walk around a little bit hunched over, kind of protecting their, their heart area. It's much more of a mental type of society. And you can get through that. It just takes a little effort. Absolutely. If you engage but it just, with the people. the environment feels. Yeah. Yeah. Like in general, like yeah. the all over feeling of it. But coming to Austin, all of a sudden people make eye contact on the street. Strangers say hi to you. Yeah. Everyone's smiling. I remember I moved here in August of 1997 and it was hot and I love the heat. And... You know, I moved into this co-op and everybody there was so cool and Austin was so cool and you could be weird here. And I think just with my energy, people really embraced me. Yeah. And at that point, I'd had maybe like a year 
of feeling like, you know, a normally attractive person at least. So I'd gotten used to it a little bit. So I was comfortable in my skin. I wasn't as self-conscious as I was when I was younger. And I was just ready to experience life and loved it here. I went to UT and I studied anthropology. I studied both cultural and physical anthropology and archaeology. Um, I was very interested in urban anthropology, kind of like what we were talking about before, like Studs Terkel is one of my, my heroes, somebody that you know, interviews people and they want to know what, you know, people do with their days and do with their lives and yeah. hear a little bit about their stories. And I was very, very interested in that, very interested in other cultures, um, ancient civilizations. So I went to field school in Belize and I started kind of leaving every summer. So I was living in New York with friends some summers, mm-hmm. which was awesome. I love Manhattan. Um, it's one of my favorite cities. And then I was living in Portland some summer, San Francisco. So I was really experiencing a lot of different cities. And I was just kind of living it up for a long time. And people would look at me and they'd say, you're an artist. I'd be like, oh, yeah, there's that thing that I can do. And every once in a while, if if somebody knew I was an artist and they asked me to draw something, I would do it. Or I'd do it for fun once in a while, but it wasn't really... It wasn't, you know, a daily practice. It wasn't anything I thought about I kind of thought it was you know a chapter in my life that I had done and it was over yeah. it didn't really I didn't think about it oh, I was too okay. busy with other stuff and then um, after living in Manhattan for two years I came back to Austin and I got pregnant very quickly after that and I had my daughter Wolfie yeah and being a single mom I was very much in momland for a long time like seven or eight years and Um, I have narcolepsy and sometimes when you go through a big hormonal change, it will kick narcolepsy into high gear. So all of a sudden, what was manageable my whole life became unmanageable and I had to sleep all the time and it took years to figure out what was going on. So I was overwhelmed being a young single mom, you know, with something that looked like a very serious health condition that was... Uh, making it hard for me to take care of my daughter. And it was taking up a lot of my time every day. So before that, your whole life you'd been dealing with this. When I finally got diagnosed, they look at your life history. And because I had always, I've had visions my whole life, waking Uh visions. Um, I've had crazy sleep cycles my whole life. Um, I've always been much more nocturnal Uh and had a hard time during the day. I, my dreams are crazy strong and I've swung from very intense insomnia that would last for months where I would lose 20 pounds and I used to be um, even more slender than I am now. I still am, but I used to be even more so. And to lose 20 pounds on that, it looks very scary. It looks, um, it's dangerous actually. So I would get very, very intense insomnia and it would frequently be caused by a nightmare that was so vivid that I would make a conscious decision not to go back to sleep for a few nights. And then after that, I just wouldn't be able to. And the thing with narcolepsy is that it swings both ways. It swings to too much sleep, inappropriate sleep, um, frequent sleep, to absolute insomnia because the chemicals that tell your brain whether to be sleepy or not, they're just totally out of whack. Yeah. So, Can um, you give me just like, what's like a short definition of what it is, narcolepsy? 
Absolutely. So narcolepsy is actually diagnosed um, as an, a disorder of REM. Mm-hmm. So people think about narcolepsy as like the guy that kind of falls asleep at the restaurant. Usually when people are falling asleep during the day, say in sort of inappropriate situation, um, it's actually usually due to sleep apnea. Okay. They're just not getting enough sleep at night. They're not getting the proper sleep cycles because of this uninterrupted sleep. Right. It's much less frequent that it's narcolepsy. So in order to be diagnosed with narcolepsy, you have to do an overnight sleep study to make sure that you don't have sleep apnea, that you don't have restless leg syndrome and other things that can be interrupting your sleep at night. And you have to do a daytime study where you take a 20-minute nap every two hours. You take five of them Uh during the day. And what they're looking for is um, a very quick onset of REM. So most people, they have four cycles of sleep. You go through the first cycle, you go through the second cycle, then you go into REM, and then you go into the other type of deep sleep, which is phase four. So with a narcoleptic, it's not taking that 45 to 90 minutes to go into REM. We don't have the first two cycles of sleep generally. So we're going into REM sometimes before our eyes are closed. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes it's 45 seconds, sometimes it's five minutes, but it's not that 45 to 90 minutes, which would be considered normal. And REM is rapid eye movement, right? Exactly. But what does that indicate is happening? That indicates that you it's the first phase of deep sleep, and that's when most of your dreaming occurs. Okay. There is other types of dreaming that occurs outside of REM, but during REM, your muscles, uh, they don't work because when you're dreaming, say you're running, you don't want to be yeah. in bed like punching your partner or whatever as you're like trying to race, race away from something. So yes, it's the first phase of deep sleep. And most narcoleptics, we're pretty much missing the first two phases of sleep. We're not getting the fourth phase of sleep, which is making us very tired all the time. Okay. We're not getting that deep, restful sleep. So if... An average person has three to four cycles of REM every night. When I do a sleep study, it's like 200 huh. cycles of REM and not really anything else. So I'm going straight into REM and then it's just REM all night. And I, I don't wake up, but my brain is waking up constantly Yeah, because it's going through these cycles. So it's a lot of um, brain awakenings. Like I don't wake up, my eyes don't open, but it's everybody's brain wakes up a couple times a night, but it's excessive. It's very excessive. So the REM is very excessive. And then during the next day, um, they measure how quickly you fall asleep. And then they measure how quickly you go into REM. And most people, if you're taking a 20 minute nap, they're not going to go into REM, but the narcoleptic does. Okay. So that's kind of how they diagnose it. But it's very interesting because the media you know, in Hollywood movies and stuff, they portray it as, you know, um, somebody falling into their soup or you're just talking and they collapse. And that is an accurate portrayal of some people that have narcolepsy. They have narcolepsy one. Yeah. There is no period of getting sleepy. They're just out. Huh. They are out of the chemical called orexin or hypocretin. So there's, they usually can't have driver's license. Yeah. Sometimes if it's happening 200 times a day, they need a helper in the house. It's very serious. Yeah. My friend has narcolepsy one. And if he doesn't walk to the store with his wife, granted along that 10 minute walk, he'll pass out in the neighborhood he lives in. He gets robbed. So he can't really walk to the store alone. 
Wow. Because it's that serious. And usually people with narcolepsy one have cataplexy, which is a loss of muscle tone, which is caused by strong emotion. So you start laughing and you just crumple to the ground. Very, very strange. So um, my form of narcolepsy goes more along with narcolepsy two, where we have the hypersomnia. So we sleep for super long periods of time, which people with narcolepsy one, they might only sleep eight or nine hours through a 24 hour period. They don't need excessive sleep, but it's happening frequently. We have frequent sleep needs, and we tend to sleep excessively. We don't always have cataplexy. So I don't experience much cataplexy. Yeah. Unless I, if I get very surprised or I'm very stressed out, I'll start to show symptoms where it looks like my narcolepsy is very serious. Yeah. And on paper, it's I have very severe narcolepsy. And the doctors are a little surprised at how much i'm functioning <laughs> yeah right um but so before you had wolfie you had it kind of under control and then you're saying yeah. this hormonal shift kind of kicked it into a higher gear that's it exactly yes okay. so the hypersomnia became a real problem so sleeping all the time and i was needing to take care of this baby and i was needing to work all the time because i was a single mom i had to make money so it was becoming very problematic and it took a very long time to get diagnosed And once I met the sleep doctor, and I could tell her about when I was little, you know, having all these things happen at night to me, and I've always been um, uh, somebody who's experienced uh, kind of paranormal type of things. And it kind of drove my parents crazy because they don't believe in that type of thing. But they also couldn't deny that certain things were happening. But a lot of that, you know, a scientist will say that's due to hallucinations. That's due to REM cycles while you're still awake. Because I experience a lot of REM while I'm awake. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a scientific reason, let's say, for it. So it's what accounted for me kind of being a weird kid. Yeah. And I think I had read that at a certain point when you started meditating, that mm-hmm. helped a lot. Is that kind of the next Absolutely. part of the story? Yeah. So when my daughter got to be about eight years old, I realized that I needed a creative outlet. I really hadn't oh, done right. okay. that much creative stuff in a long time. So I was like, well, maybe I will go back to my art as a hobby. And I decided to get studio space and I found Canopy yeah. um, where our studios are. And I got studio mates to make it affordable. And all of a sudden I had this space and I would get somebody to watch Wolfie once a week and I would come here and have alone time and um, do my creative things. And for about six months, I really didn't know what to do with myself. And then finally I had a little bit of like a spiritual breakthrough and um, I started a piece that was very large and it was the first time that I had had time. I mean, it was the first time that I had had the space to work large. Uh So that shifted everything for me because if I try to sit down on a couch or a bed and draw something small, I'm asleep and I can pass out for hours. All of a sudden eight hours are gone. (laughs) I haven't drawn anything. So to be able to draw large and um, stand up while I'm drawing and have it be super engaging. If I work on the floor, it's uncomfortable enough where I don't pass out asleep. So that's kind of how I got back into doing art. Was that the question? Yeah. Okay. Sorry, (laughs) I went off on a tangent and I kind of forgot what I was No, there's no tangents here. This is all (laughs) all good. But yeah, it was supposed to be a hobby and never... Never in a million years wanted to be a professional artist or thought that would happen or um, had that plan. Yeah. And what about your level of passion about it now? I mean, do you 
Do you feel like you've found that? I do. Well, I've become very passionate in my adult life. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <That's good. laughs> it's yeah, it's very interesting. I had a series of, you know, different things that happened throughout my life where um even having a kid when you have a kid, yeah. If you're somebody who's not super attached here, that's going to change things. Yeah. All of a sudden you've got somebody to take care of and you're going to do anything for that person and you love that person more than anything and you have an attachment all of a sudden that yeah, person right so that's like okay well you know i need to be here something outside right. of yourself something outside of yourself yes <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah so i started to get connected here more so that was the beginning of it and then when i was about 38 i had i guess kind of a a spiritual awakening would be what it would be called you know i like to think that i wasn't a total dud before but once that happened it kind of cracked everything open where all of a sudden I could see very clearly how important it was for me to consciously decide to get connected here and to get very connected here. Yeah. And if I'm here and I'm going to be invested in this, then I'm going to do it big and I'm all in. Yeah. So that's kind of where I've been for the past few years. So it is a little strange to think about my childhood when I was so dispassionate. I mean, I was a really skinny kid. I don't like food. I don't really like anything. I like to read and I like to escape. And that was kind of what I like to do. And now it's, you know, like I enjoy talking with people so much. You know, I love food. It's like your whole, everything changes. Like when you become passionate. Yeah. But it is like another world again. So, I mean, my life, I feel like I've led four lifetimes already, and I feel like I've had, you know, very distinctive chapters of my life, and I'm like, oh, it keeps getting better and better. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I, I think I kind of knew that when I was a kid. I think I knew... You were just like, I'll just wait this out, it'll get better. Exactly, yeah. Like, I, I kind of knew that I would go opposite of other people. Like, some people peak early, and I knew that my life would get better and better. So, I love getting older. Oh. I, I'm like one of the few people I know where I'm like, there's, there's so much to be learned and you have epiphanies along the way yeah, and the maturity that it brings and the things that you realize you didn't even know you didn't know. Yeah. And just, there's so much out there. So part of what drives me crazy about sleeping all the time is that I just want to experience everything. And yeah, you know, time is my one really big issue in life. And it sounds funny because everybody's busy nowadays. You know, everybody is kind of struggling to to make things work and it's a busy world. I'm really, I really struggle with time. It is my biggest issue and it affects every aspect of my life. It trickles down into everything. So a lot of people that have, I have narcolepsy and Klein-Levin, which is sleeping beauty disorder, which is very rare. It's less than one in a million. I'm one of two people that has both. Oh, wow. So I've had my brain studied a lot. I know way more about my brain than probably anybody should know about their brain. But, you know, I used to be part of support groups because I felt so bad. It puts you in a real state of suffering when you realize you sort of have this half-life. These chronic illnesses that you see, it's there's a lot of people with depression because they don't get to experience life fully. And it's not necessarily like they're dying, but it's a half-life. 
They yeah. might have half a day where they feel good and they can experience everything. And then for a week, they're kind of recovering from that. So in these support groups, it became where it wasn't beneficial for me to be there because the state of suffering was so deep. Yeah. And there's a lot of suicides with oh, narcolepsy, wow. which a lot of people don't know. And there's just a lot of depression. And after, you know, I suffered for years, honestly. And I'm not somebody to get in a rut, yeah. you know, but it was years that I was very frustrated. I was very angry. It just makes me think of how the majority of people take for granted that they have all the time they want <laughs> to do whatever they want. You yeah. know? I mean, they can stay up or do whatever. You yeah, know? I know. I'm very envious of insomniacs. Because mine really never goes to insomnia anymore. And I used, I used to be able to get so much stuff done. Yeah. And it's that pri- productivity thing that everybody yeah. goes after. It um, feels yeah. good to be productive. But yeah, I mean, it's something, it's very difficult to explain to people because people say, God, I wish I could rest more. And everybody's so busy and harried. Like everybody could benefit from some more rest. But I have to sleep minimum 14 hours a day. And when I have a Klein Levin episode, it's much more. So, you know, I don't hate it like the way that I used to. Yeah, You know, I was very angry for a long time. You know, I finally had passion. I wanted to do all stuff and I couldn't, you know, and my mind never stops. And to have that going at the same time where you're so tired, you can't see straight and you're hallucinating and you're trying to stay up and focus in the third dimension and get stuff done and you can't i mean if you makes you feel a little bit crazy it's very frustrating and it it actually gives me a lot of anxiety which i think is strange for people to know because people assume oh you must just get sleepy and like sedated and then just drift off to sleep and for me it feels like a panic attack but i've had to change my whole life around where you know i just take preventative naps through the day and i kind of try to schedule my day that so that i can take those naps before it gets bad and that helps me manage it a lot better because the drugs that they prescribe don't work on me. They don't yeah. work on all people with narcolepsy. So I, I've had to make a lot of lifestyle changes and my level of self-care is very high. So I do a lot of yoga. And when I started meditating, it really brought an extra layer of calmness and connectedness and centeredness in and my dreams, which have always been so vivid and so you felt so much like a second life because they felt so real. They started kind of clearing up. Like it kind of, it feels like it cleared the clutter out of them. Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden I'm not having mundane dreams about being at work or something or yeah. anxiety dreams or stuff like that. All of a sudden the dreams had very clear messages and the dreams started to have different energy signatures and things like that. And, you know, I started becoming very interested in sleep and interested in dreaming. And, you know, maybe this thing is happening to me for a reason. So I used to go to conferences about sleep where you have some of the best sleep doctors in the world talking. These are very Western doctors. And they're like, we don't know why people sleep. We know that we need the rest. We know that different hormones are produced during different sleep cycles. We know that these things are happening, but we don't know why we sleep. It could be something like we're practicing for something. It could be that we're getting knowledge for something. You know, it could be many 
different things are happening and things that are a little bit outside the realm of normal Western science. Yeah. Which is quite interesting to me when, you know, science and consciousness or science and spirituality meet like that. Because that's always kind of what it felt like to me. It felt like something other. It didn't really feel like a health problem. So you turned a problem or something that gave you anxiety into a strength because you're using the dreams to fuel your work, right? Exactly. And I think that's always going to be one of my messages is turning what you would call a disability into an ability. And what that looked like for me was, okay, this thing is happening to me every day and I can't control it. And the more I resist it, the worse it gets and the worse they feel. So how can I make this experience mean something? So if I am somebody who my whole life I've been having these crazy strong dreams, I have a lot of lucid dreams. I've been able to lucid dream since I was young. I have a lot of um, just kind of messages that come through to me in dreams. I figure things out in dreams. I thought, well, maybe that's a little bit of a skill almost. You know, yeah, like a superpower. It's kind of like a superpower. And like the more I started to kind of pay attention to my dreams and not be like, oh, it was just a dream. That was stupid. It doesn't count, whatever. More be like, well, maybe there is information there. Yeah. And we don't really know where our consciousness is going when we're asleep. So maybe, you know, there is astral travel and maybe, you know, there are other dimensions and maybe there are different concepts that might be higher in other yeah. dimensions. Or and- a message or. Yeah, or a message that's out there. So why not start paying my dreams some respect and giving them some um, validity? Like, why not just try that? So the more I did that, the more I was like, oh, God. And you (laughs) learn so much about yourself, of course, from dreams. And then, yeah, it just felt like so much information was coming through. And, you know, at that time, like, I had the studio. And I was like, some of this stuff is crazy. Like, I would have a dream about somebody, and I'd email them. And they'd be like, well, that's crazy because this happened to me yesterday, you know, or there'd be these crazy synchronicities where I'm like, this is real. Like something real is happening and I'm going to start paying attention to that and making this thing that's happening to me mean something and doing something good with it. And And it, it makes me think of what you were saying, the way your parents raised you is like doing something to help the world. Yeah. So that's always... Absolutely. Being raised by people who are so civic-minded and such humanitarians. You know, like for me, when they really wanted me to go into the arts, because they knew they knew it would stimulate me and that it could give me a good life. And they also knew that I could put something out there that other people could enjoy and learn from. Yeah. So it's always been kind of a two-pronged effort. How can you keep yourself healthy and happy and passionate and satiated and stimulated and also um, give something to the world of value. Yeah. Yeah. So I felt like this kind of unusual thing was happening to me. And then it's like, I do have that background of having, um, you know, being a good technical artist. So how can I meld yeah. The two, and all of a sudden, being able to do that and express myself, it felt so good, because my whole childhood, I was so quiet and introverted, oh. and I've never been a very articulate person, so my... Like you didn't have a voice. I didn't have a voice, yeah. and I wasn't... I was having a lot of deep thoughts. You know, I was an introvert. I was looking around at everything, and I was, I was a 
an interesting kid who had interesting out of the box ideas, but nobody knew about him. Yeah. So now all of a sudden to be able to have these weird ideas, but express them and people resonate with a visual image and then they hear the message and maybe it forms like a little seed or they start thinking about something to do with that. Yeah. Who knows the ripples? I mean, yeah, exactly. And who knows who you inspire to yeah. do other great things. So all of a sudden that felt really, really good. And I started to get in such of a state of appreciation because a lot of people don't have the means to express themselves. Yeah. And it, stays inside and then you see crazy comments on <laughs> yeah on the internet and i think it's just they're so bottled up they don't yeah. have a creative outlet they don't have a way to express themselves and it comes out in you know these really strange ways and they're really disconnected probably they're not they're tapped into kind of like this whatever the universal community of yes this kind of knowledge or energy or yeah i think that exactly i think they're People feel very isolated and disconnected. So, yeah, I started to just feel really lucky. Yeah. Like, wow, I, because stress triggers in narcolepsy, I have to make time for yoga and meditation because the meditation clears my dreams out so much for me to get subject material for my drawing. Like, I have to make time to meditate now. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you start meditating and you are in that stream of universal consciousness and you are very connected. That's the number one way I know of to get really connected to source energy Yeah, um, where things start to come through you very easily and your internal guidance system kicks on. Yeah. So yeah, it just became awesome. And then I started drawing all this stuff and people were resonating with it. And, you know, I've always felt a little bit like a weird oddball. Yeah. But then all of a sudden I'm like, wow, I'm getting kind of tapped in. People are understanding this and resonating with it kind of hardcore I never thought that would happen either. So that felt really good. And then all of a sudden, like now, four years later, after starting doing my artwork again, it's like the people that find me are awesome. Like you just have to draw and they come. And these are like kindred spirits. These are amazing, amazing people. Yeah, talk about connecting. I mean, that's amazing. But it's like when when you're able to show your authentic self, and most people aren't. You know, we're kind of lucky as artists when you're yeah. able to do that. You what about attract vulnerability? The right Does this feel vulnerable, your work? You know, I'm, I've always been very, um, it's easy for me to be vulnerable. I've never really had too much of an issue with that. Like even living up on the East Coast where people tend to be a little harder and tougher, um, I was never really that tough. Yeah. I always thought, oh gosh, do we have to really go through all this BS of putting up walls and breaking down walls? I've always just been able to connect with people very easily and yeah. find common ground and um What I like vulnerable. I like what it says on your website. You're talking about uh beneficial symbols and themes in your work, abundance, oneness, balance, unity. Mm-hmm. It's it's really cool. Yeah, and that really started to come after I started meditating, that stuff was coming through very clearly. And I've always felt a little bit on a soul level, um, like I was a keeper of seals. Mm-hmm. Um, my last name is Solomon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, and I've always loved symbols. And, you know, in ancient cultures, people communicated through symbols and learned through symbols. So it's this very ancient 
way of sharing knowledge. So when you are when you're asleep and you're dreaming, um, you're going out of body. You're astrally traveling. So when you're in the astral, there's all sorts of different things out there. Um, now because I hold a high frequency anyway, and I meditate a yeah. lot, I'm able to. You know, I have very good dreams. I haven't had nightmares since I was very young. I used to have horrible nightmares. Usually with narcolepsy, it goes the way of nightmares. I don't. I haven't had nightmares in years and years. Um, so my dreams are are pretty awesome. And because there is a level of lucid dreaming in my dreams, you practice in your dreams what you practice in real life. So something like if you're going to be pulling symbols out of the astral, for example, there's a level of discernment that needs to happen because there's all sorts of stuff out there. You don't want to pull in, say, a detrimental yeah. symbol. You want the symbols that are going to be very beneficial to the human race. Yeah. So a lot of what I do in my artwork when I use symbols, I'm kind of incorporating them in because people learn kind of on a, another level that's maybe not a super conscious level. They learn from symbols. Yeah. Um, the human brain tends to be a little bit programmable. So it's kind of like a, a hack. Like if, you know, we're going to be taking in these symbols and learning from them, why not make them very, very beneficial symbols? Yeah. So everything, all of my pieces are imbued with intentions that are for the highest good. And I do a lot of meditation around that also because I always want to bring the highest things in. And I always, you know, want to bring these higher uh, yeah. concepts in and concepts of higher consciousness, you could call it. And that happens to me through dream time. Sometimes when I'm awake, I'll have epiphanies and I'll have spiritual experiences. Um, it's not as frequent. So it happens to me through dream time. Um, and I pay attention and I believe in it. And yeah. yeah, that's what I do. Where is your work now? Like what's kind of the most recent? I know you did a series of moths recently. Yeah. My most recent series is called Darkest Before Dawn. And it's talking a little bit about um, kind of the, the period that I feel like we're in now politically in this country where I feel like things are going to get good. Yeah. But we're going through a real dark period. And it's a little scary. We don't know how long it's going to last or how bad it's going to get. Yeah. But something even better is going to come out of it afterward. So that's kind of how, you know, how the phrase darkest before dawn goes. I, I was going to say that you have great titles. I was looking at all the work on your oh, website. You. Like, I love your titles. <laughs> I think a lot about everything. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks for noticing that. <laughs> but yeah, I think on the flip side of that, that same um, saying, you could also look at all of the pre-manifested energy that is happening right now because of our experiences where we're, everything's so nuanced. And all this crazy stuff is happening and all of the knowledge that we're getting out of it and all the shared experiences that we're seeing and all the contrast. I mean, we're learning so much yeah. every day That's about right. it. You're being challenged and you have Everything's to kind of rise to the occasion. Yeah. yeah. There's much learning to be had right now, but it's also creating within all of us. Okay, well, if we know we don't want to see that, what do we want to see? Oh, yeah. So it's creating that contrast where there are these like little seedlings being planted that we might not even be consciously aware of now. And the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of people were, were unhappy before all of this. Some of this stuff is a long time coming, you know, 
um, there could be whole paradigm changes. Yeah. Like a whole different world where we're doing things completely different than we were before. You know, with all the climate control or uh, climate change stuff coming to the surface, you know, maybe that's putting forth ideas of how are we going to be sustainable after we go through this dark period. Yeah, facing some things that yeah. have been kind of ignored for a long time or exactly just settling for too long. Yes. So it's I don't feel like Darkest Before Dawn really has to completely do with just, oh, it's this dark period and then things get better. It's kind of like there is this dark period in this window of suffering and everything feels bad, and but there's still there's all this pre-manifested energy and what are you going to do with it afterward? Yeah. Um, it's not just something that's going to happen to us. It's going to be us changing things. So it kind of has like a, a little bit of a double, a double meaning kind of what I wanted for that. So for that series, I did do a bunch of moths cause I just got really into, I forget what started that all, but I got really into moths and they are nocturnal and they are on this path of light. Yeah. I mean, they're very, very interesting creatures and the transformation that they go through. You know, when we see these beautiful moths that are huge with these crazy patterns and these crazy colors, a lot of them only live five days or a week or two weeks. They don't live very long. They don't have mouth parts. They are there only to reproduce. And you look at that short period of time and then you look at everything leading up to that when they were a caterpillar when they were in their cocoons for so long and those periods of time are very long in comparison so it has to do with transformation and just kind of sometimes you just can't go 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 you have to just kind of live and then kind of wrap yourself up and everything has to integrate and then maybe like you adapt and things that you couldn't think of before because you were so busy doing something all of a sudden you have this restful period and then you have answers so it kind of went along with the theme of darkest before dawn so those were supposed to kind of be my accessory pieces and then i had three main pieces which included um the first self-portrait i've done in over 20 years which was me married to an african serval in front of a labyrinth um that was a super fun piece what are you looking forward to this year and maybe talk about like where people can get your work and whatever you want to So this year, um, I'm looking forward to working even more with textiles. I have a small clothing line out and I love fashion and I love clothing. So it's been a really fun marriage doing the artwork on the clothing. Um, so that's really fun. I want to do more of that. I really want to get into um, doing like things like linens and bedspreads. So I want to start affecting other people's sleep. Yeah. Because <laughs> I've been told that by a few people that have gotten pieces that they put them up in their bedroom. And they're like, God, now I'm having crazy dreams. Or now I had a lucid dream. Um, so I think that would just be like a fun way to kind of play with, you know, what I have going on. So I think those two things probably in the next year or two I want to do. And then I currently have my series up at Book People in the cafe. In February, it goes to Black Feather Vintage Works, which is behind Dimensions Gallery on Springdale. And we're going to be having a pre-Valentine's Day party on February 10th. Uh-huh. It's going to be really fun. Jess Neary 
has that store and everything's very curated. The first time I went in, there were two pairs of moon boots that had never been worn from the eighties. So there's like really cool stuff there. Yeah. And then I have some large canvases going to the high rum distillery on the two ninety wine trail. Um, I've got large canvases at one and only tattoo shop in San Marcos. I have work year round at Austin art garage and then East Blue Genie and the Armadillo Christmas Bazaar are my big events every year. And then online, I have my work at skylineartedditions.com slash flip dash Solomon. All right. Nice. Um, Well, I'm sure we could keep talking for hours and hours. (laughs) I know we could. (laughs) But I guess uh, that's probably a good place to stop, huh? Okay. Do you have anything else you want to say? Um. I mean, you've said a lot of, I think, you know, poignant, inspirational things. Okay, good. Yeah, I don't want to overdo it. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to overdo it. Yeah, we don't want to overdo it. Yeah. I feel good about it. All right, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you, Scott. It was fun. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider sharing it with anyone that you think might get value from it. And also, consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Be sure to check out the links in the show notes at the bottom of the webpage for each episode. Or also by tapping the Square Austin Art Talk logo graphic on your phone within the podcast app to discover more info related to my guests, their work, and many of the things we mention and talk about in the episode. Please don't hesitate to share any feedback so that I can continue to improve what I'm creating and make it more useful to you. Thanks again for your time and take care. Mm-hmm.